Hello and welcome to The Outerview with myself, Alan Swan, a show all about the art of interviewing on RTE Radio 1 Extra. Today's guest is Scott Solder, who's an expert in language, advanced communication and human behaviour. He's the co-author of You Need This Book to Get What You Want, a popular psychology book focused on personal performance, influence and persuasion, which is on sale around the world and translated into several languages. He's an experienced journalist and live broadcaster and has appeared as a commentator on BBC One, BBC Two, Channel Five, Sky News and BBC Radio, analysing the language and behaviour of key public figures. As well as his specialist expertise, he's a strong news sense, having been the executive producer and editor of BBC News and Current Affairs and the programme director of LBC Radio, and has also covered the biggest stories of the past two decades, both out in the field and in the newsroom. My guest today on The Out of View, Scott Solder. I suppose what's really interesting about having you on the show, Scott, is that you have worked across a whole, a whole host of different positions in media. So you've seen it from, from both sides of the story, the art of media interviewing. So I suppose you'd be very well placed to answer this question, which is, do you think the art of interviewing is dying? It's an interesting question. Um, I don't think it's dying, but I certainly think it's changing. Um, I think there was a time when people would go into what I would call interview mode when they went into a, a broadcast interview. Um, but these days, it tends to be more like normal conversation. Um I mean, if you the, the, the purists among us will say that good interviewers begin their questions with who, what, where, why and when. Uh, they're nice, open questions and they allow the guests to speak. But if you listen to modern day interviews, particularly uh, on radio stations, which are targeted at younger people, it tends to be much less formal. Uh, it's much chattier with many more closed questions. And it just sounds like the listener is kind of eavesdropping on somebody else's private conversation. And I say that not in a bad way. Um, it's it's a piece of progress, I think, mm. uh, because I think it sounds more authentic. Do you remember the first ever interview you were involved in? Uh, yeah. Um, the first interview I was ever involved in was with um, Sir Edward Heath, the uh, former Prime Minister of the UK. Um, and it was uh, as a rookie uh, reporter, uh, and he was visiting a uh, constituency in South East London uh, before a general election and he happened to be popping along to endorse the Conservative candidate uh, in that constituency and it was my job uh, on day two of being a rookie reporter at a local station to go and interview him. And what happened? He, it was pouring with rain and we decided that we would meet him in the pub uh, and he walked in with a small entourage. Uh, he was drenched. He looked around the room and he said, good grief, what a day. And wouldn't speak to anybody until uh, one of his entourage had uh, bought him a pint. Uh, he sat down next to the fire uh, with his pint. And bearing in mind, this was in something like April. So the fire had no business being on, but it was a typical, you know, English day. And uh, uh, Ted Heath sat down and the candidate sat next to him uh, and uh, I was introduced to him by one of the entourage and that I would be the local reporter talking to him. And I said uh, to him, you know, thank you very much for uh, joining us, Mr. Heath, as he was then. Um, and bearing in mind, this was the first interview I'd ever done. It wasn't just my first high profile 
politician interview. It was the first interview I'd ever done. And um, I made the worst mistake you can imagine. I said, I said, would you like me to run through the areas I'm going to cover? And he said, yes. And I said, uh, OK, well, I want to talk about the campaign. Um, I want to talk about the national campaign. Uh, and I also want to talk locally about, you know, what chances you think the candidate has here in Greenwich, I think it was. And he said, yes, fine. And then I said, uh, after that, um, I'd like to talk to you about um, the role that Mrs. Thatcher has had, not only in this campaign, uh, but really on your career. And he looked at me and he said, good grief. I never talk about her. And there was this huge <laughs> silence. Um, and lesson number one was uh, never tell them what you're going to ask them. Yeah. But at the same time, you're only starting off, so you can't really beat yourself up over that. Well, and it's also true to say that the best lessons in life are learned the hard way, aren't they? Yeah, one of the things actually that struck me there is you, is you painted the wonderful picture of that um, quaint English pub on an April day with the lashings of rain and a lovely fireside. The environment is very important in an interview. And I presume that you were going to get more out of Mr Heath um, while he had a nice point to one side with a roaring fire that sometimes where you pick your place for an interview ha- can bring an awful lot to the interview. It can, and also I think where you sit. Um, I remember very clearly we were sitting, as you say, in a, in a nice pub in Greenwich by the River Thames. You know, it was it was all very nice. Um, but I sat next to him, um, not really because I, not, I don't think I did it deliberately, but I, I, my, instinctively I wanted to sit next to him and talk to him rather than sit across the table uh, because I always feel that, that, that feels a little more adversarial. Um, I just sat next to him as if we were both, you know, sitting at a bus stop and um, held the microphone in between us and uh, and just talked over the microphone uh, rather than sort of pushing it forward uh, towards him when he was speaking and pulling pulling it back to myself when I was speaking. And I, I really do think that, that that was a good thing to do quite accidentally uh, by this particular rookie. But um, it was certainly a strategy that I uh, kept uh, hold of for the rest of my career. Was there any point in your career, Scott, when you got to the point where you thought, you know what, I feel comfortable doing these interviews now that, you know, was there a moment or a guest where you went, this feels right, this feels really comfortable, I've, you know, not that you've mastered your craft, because I don't think any of us have ever mastered a craft, but that you felt that was good, that felt right, I did a good job there. Yeah, and I think that the uh, the times that you feel that, it, it, I don't think you reach a point in your career where every interview feels like that, uh, because I think, you know, that's the road to complacency. But I think you get to a point when you know uh, internally uh, whether a, an interview has gone well. And for me, uh, it was always uh, when I forgot really that I was speaking to anybody on the radio or TV uh, and that we were just chatting. And funnily enough, I mean, going back to the microphone point that I made earlier, um, I always found uh, radio interviews much easier uh, when I wasn't holding a microphone for that reason, because I think you could actually just sit down and chat either if there's a microphone in front of you because you're in a studio um, or... Um, if we're using lapel mics and things, which I know isn't best practice, but sometimes if you really want to get something out of somebody, the removal of that microphone and just almost going into a suspended belief that you're just chatting mm. without any of the kind of uh, hardware of radio or TV around you, I think can lead to that feeling that the interview went well because it felt like a conversation and it just felt that it was revealing, not in a journalistic way, 
but it felt revealing in the sense that you were just having a fascinating conversation with another human being. Yeah, I've never quite understood the op- uh, the kind of obsession of not using lapel mics for radio. I think there's, there's something, it's it's seen as a very kind of visual TV thing that, you know, oh, you pop it underneath your shirt and you, you, like people in radio or podcasting tend not to kind of not dismiss lapel mics, but kind of go, well, it's not really kind of, the, you know, it, we're very nostalgic and very traditional in that way. I think that's true, and I, I've never really understood uh, why that's the sort of received wisdom. I wonder if it's because the sound quality can suffer or because the, you get a bit of rustle sometimes if it's up against your shirt or something. Yeah. But, um, but no, I'm a great fan of particularly personal interviews. You know, if you're talking to somebody and they're not a politician or they're not somebody in public life, they're just a human being that you want to get the best out of. Um, I really... You know, I couldn't recommend a lapel mic um, more, enough uh, in in order to really make that fly. Who, Scott, do you think really gets it, really gets the art of interviewing that you've heard or seen over the years? Uh, I can think of three people. Uh, one of them, uh, sadly not with us, Terry Wogan, I think was the master. He was the Jedi Knight of interviewing uh, and also of broadcasting, actually. Uh, well, you know, whether interviewing or not, I think all of those rules that we like to you know teach uh newcomers to the industry i think sir terry got absolutely instinctively uh so i would say he springs to mind first of all um secondly uh nick ferrari who is the breakfast host on lbc which is a a station that i used to be program director of um and he you know many people would say, oh, isn't he that right-wing shock jock? Mm-hmm. He's certainly right-wing. He's certainly conservative in his politics. Um, I kind of don't, don't really agree that he's a shock jock, uh, but he's certainly opinionated. But if you listen to him interviewing somebody, he manages to uh, blend the sharp journalism, the, the questions that will get an answer that is revealing, with that personal kind of ambience that occurs during the interview, which makes the guest feel at ease, uh, unless it's adversarial, of course. Um, but it also uh, makes the listener feel extremely comfortable that they and, and privileged to be party to that conversation. I did say that there were three hmm. uh, broadcasters. My third one uh, is a lady called Jane Garvey, who is now a presenter on Radio 4. She presents Woman's Hour. Uh, but I first knew her when she presented The Breakfast Show uh, on BBC Radio 5 Live. Uh, years ago when it when it started in the early 90s um, it's a program that I eventually became editor of with different presenters but but I think the way that she and Peter Allen uh, launched that program uh, with the tone of voice that it had uh, the style of interviewing it had and with the very natural humor it had uh, was what set that station on its course right from the very beginning and, and made it the success that it that it is um, and she is, again, a, a, a mix of an amazingly wry sense of humour, which never has you belly laughing, but it has you smiling broadly almost all the time. Uh, and then she can immediately switch uh, to asking, uh, journalistically asking a question, which absolutely flattens the opponent because uh, the opponent wasn't expecting it. 
Uh, and I, again, uh, I was going to say she's a past master, probably should say past mistress, but whatever it is, um, she really is excellent interviewer. And of those three examples that you've given, I think one of the things that would strike me that they all have in, 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 in spades was how professional and prepared they were that it allows them to be able to go from, you know, from from funny one moment to being able to be cutting with a really good fact or really good information. You have to be prepared when you're doing your interviews. You absolutely do. I mean... Listen, if it's an interview where there's a breaking news story, um, if something awful has just happened or, you know, something unexpected, the old rules of interviewing apply. Very simply, you want to know what happened, where, with whom, how and why. And that's, you know, in a way, very easy. You just you just want to know what happened. It's like running into a pub and shouting, tell me what's going on. But um, anything which is more considered, you absolutely have to prepare. You have to look at the cuttings, look at what the interviewee has said before. You have to think of what your killer question is going to be. And the killer question doesn't always have to be the one that gets the news line. Sometimes at the end, it um, can be an, an amusing one. I mean, I heard, uh, again, I think it was this morning, Nick Ferrari had a, um, a cabinet minister on, and the cabinet minister was talking about his Welsh heritage, but the but he said that he was actually English. Um, and uh, right at the end, Nick Ferrari said something along the lines of, uh, very quickly then, um, if Wales were playing England at rugby, what colour jersey would you be wearing? And he answered it well. But the point is, asking clever questions yeah. like that uh, will very often get you a cheeky news line, even if you're not at the top of the bulletins with it. Yeah, it's, it's a nice way to get that line all right. Absolutely, yeah. Um, one thing I'm really interested in, Scott, is your background in in psychology and um, NLP as well. What I what struck me about it was that a lot of presenters or producers and and journalists don't necessarily do enough of the behavioural background work or little small nuances that you can notice in a guest or a person that you know that the way they sit or the way they say a certain word that you can do certain things um and some people might refer to it as jedi mind tricks um but there are it never cease to amaze me that presenters don't do enough of that type of work in their craft to help them elicit better answers from the person that they're interviewing yeah i mean a lot of presenters um and journalists in general actually uh get this sort of thing instinctively mm. um which is why they're in the game uh or sometimes they learn it but they don't realize they're learning it they just um gather experience and they work out at some level what seems to work and what what seems to make people respond to them well but um i mean more than a decade ago now i i began studying human behavioral psychology sort of properly um and within that i i studied an awful lot of uh, nlp which is neuro-linguistic programming which is to do with the way we communicate and the way we process information uh in our brains uh but equally you know verbal communication as well as non-verbal communication um and once i began to study that um i realized that that combined with the, the knowledge that i'd gained over decades in in tv and radio um were intrinsically linked really I, yeah. you could see how they they played off each other because the psychology of interviewing somebody the psychology of speaking in such a way that it's at uh, that it's as appealing as possible to the person that's listening uh the ability to question based on what you see in someone's face when when you're speaking to them uh seeing their eyes uh what they do with their eyes when you ask them a question uh, for example most people when they look upwards uh when they're thinking are visualizing something 
Um, and it's important to know that because if you can see that you're making people visualize something, it means that you're asking questions that are meaningful to them because they're accessing usually memories uh, that mean something to them that they're looking at um, in great detail. Uh, and there are lots of techniques um, within that kind of uh, approach to interviewing people that I think helps you enormously uh, to get the best out of your guests. Yeah, and also down to even the tone of your voice and the way you ask questions. I remember watching a, um, a lecture series recently with one of the FBI um, terrorist negotiators, and he was talking about you know the tone of voice and the way you ask a question and the way sometimes you if you can lower the baseline of your voice or if you he called it the late night DJ voice. Um, when you're asking for certain things, that helps immensely too. That's absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, any good radio broadcaster knows that if you lean into the mic and speak at a lower volume, uh, you will immediately create a, a sort of late night uh, feeling or atmosphere to your output. Whereas if you're a bouncy, energetic uh, breakfast host, then you may sit back from the mic a little bit and really speak up. You know, there are lots of ways of doing that. But I think the int intonation uh, of, of what you say is extremely important. And, and one thing that I've noticed that I think may actually have found its way to Ireland now, it certainly found its way to the UK, um, and that is um, the Australian intonation. Uh, so among younger people now, you'll hear people making statements in the Australian way where it goes up at the end of a sentence. So mm -hmm. for example, they will say, uh, you know, what did you do over the weekend? Well, we went swimming, and then we went to the pub, uh, and then we went for a curry afterwards. And that sounds like a question. In Australia, it's fine because that's culturally uh, the way people make statements. But um, beware if you are broadcasting, presenting or speaking in public, because certainly in the UK, and I would hedge a bet mm. also in Ireland, uh, when you speak up and intone upwards at the end of your sentence like that, you are subconsciously telling the people listening to you that you're doubting what you're saying um, and you're not as convincing. So make sure that when you make a statement, it goes down. You must, uh, and we can blame neighbours and home and away um, and any of those exports. For, I do, actually. I yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. I'm absolutely convinced that's where it came from. Too much tea time TV. Um, you must be having a field day with Trump. <laughs> well, it's very interesting because um, the, the language that he uses, the verbal language that he uses, and the non-verbal language that he uses is fascinating. Um, he's full of superlatives. Um, he will say, that is just going to be so very great. That is just so amazing. It's so this, very this. And that implies to me that he thinks very simplistically um, about anything, really. Um, and so I, very often, thinking simplistically can be a great thing. You know, thinking in black and white, particularly in business, um, is, is an excellent way to go because it means you don't overthink. Um, uh, but I think that looking at this man who, you know, he's been in office now for a few months and he's gradually realising that those simplistic uh, views of the world that he had beforehand aren't entirely possible when you are the president of the US uh, and watching everything unravel in front of him, um, I think to myself, yep, yeah, uh, I reckon I could have guessed that he was oversimplifying things beforehand based on the way that he spoke um if you also look um at the way that he uses his hands um he, he takes his hand and he makes almost like a circle with his thumb and his index finger and he points the circle forward uh, whenever he wants to make a point that he is 
that he that, that he thinks is important. And if you watch that, that's him attempting to simplify what he's saying. So he's, he's attempting to take a complicated concept and very simply just push it forward and say, it's only that big, it's bad, hmm. or it's good, or it's very naughty, or it's not acceptable. He, he attempts to simplify everything. And I, I, and I doubt because of, of his ego that he would um, hire somebody to help him in that stakes. Or do you think that he's smart enough to know that maybe, you know... What won him the election? That simple, that simplified language, those simple messages, those very clear. We're going to build a wall, you know, um, all those very succinct, straight to the point sentences aren't going to get him any further than he is. Do you think he's smart enough to hire somebody now to help him um, broaden out his range a bit? I would say, I mean, you know, I've never met him, but but having a guess, I would say that the the big ego is probably so big that he would need to have his back right against the wall before someone could convince him that a bit of assistance might be required here. But I'm not ruling that out because he's a smart man uh, and when the back is against the wall and when maybe he's tried everything and and things are really not working, uh, I think if somebody said, let's have a chat about your communication, um, he may be open to it. But in my experience, they really need to want it uh, in order to accept it, and it's probably too early in his learning curve in the White House at this stage. But you know, please pass the message on, Alan. Uh, when he does reach that moment, I'm very happy to help. <laughs> you are putting it out publicly that you are that you are the man to do the job. Um, <laughs> so, last couple of questions, Scott, and thanks so much for. I could look. I could talk to you about Trump and body language and tone of voice and those small little nuances the whole day because I'm fascinated by that side of things. Um, and the name of your book as well. Uh, if people want to buy it, where can they get it? Uh, you need this book to get what you want is the name of the uh, book. Uh, it's by me and my co-author Mark Palmer. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's available uh, in the UK at most bookshops, um, and it's available around the world under various different titles um, and translated into a number of languages. But for an Irish audience, I would say Amazon's probably the best place. Brilliant. Uh, last couple of questions, um, Scott, and thanks again. Would you Could you recommend, apart from your own book, obviously, uh, any other books or lectures or um, tidbits of information online that you could point in our direction for people that are that that could be either starting off um, as a young journalist, because we have a mishmash of people who um, get in touch with the, with the podcast, and these are seasoned professionals to people in media college. We have a lot of media students that listen in. So is there anything that you think that would help them that you can kind of go, look, this is a brilliant lecture that you know I recommend to everyone to watch um i can't think of anything uh, as, a, as a sort of single standout one um what i would say is um if you if, if you want interview techniques um and you want to um uh see what questions are really good at sort of extracting good facts uh, out of people i know this is going to sound counterintuitive but try and get hold of some newspaper interviews um because the they can sometimes be a real lesson to us in broadcasting uh, because you look at the the questioning in a, in a newspaper interview and you probably will make it more conversational. Uh, but but in terms of getting the information that really is enlightening, um, I think some, some very basic uh, principles of the trade uh, are there to see when people aren't too worried about equipment around them and whether the hardware is working and how it sounds and whether there's any noise pollution and all that kind of thing so i would say you know have have a look at how the how, how the newspaper guys do it uh and it can sometimes be a real uh, uh lesson 
because it, it's it's because it's pure number one obviously um that they're only concentrating on that one thing which is actually doing the interview in the first place and not the actual what surrounds it but also probably word count as well that there's a certain amount of space and time that you have to get your answer in um or your questions in and it has to be done within it's like the twitter limit you, 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 there's not much fat you can work around that's absolutely right and, and you know if you're in print then you are closest to your story uh, the only thing between you and your story is a pen and paper, really. Um, and so that's all you need. Um, and I think because you are able to focus so much on the story itself, uh, the editorial sharpness, if you like, of the interview can can often be very, very impressive. And what I find is, um, if I can flip it on, flip your question on its head, um, a lot of radio uh, people, who, particularly when they're starting out, uh, will think too much about... The microphone uh, and whether the soundproofing is good enough or uh, how we're going to edit that answer or that question um, and actually really the, the the guts of the content is what really matters uh, and all of that comes second of course there you can finesse your performance on the radio with radio techniques and broadcasting techniques and that's absolutely right you know if you were to listen to a newspaper interviewer on the radio it probably wouldn't sound all that good but certainly in terms of the content uh, and the line of questioning, I would say editorially, take your lessons from that and then apply some radio techniques to smooth out how it sounds. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to do the podcast and uh, the very best of luck uh, with everything over the next coming weeks, months and years. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Outer View for RTE Radio 1 Extra. You can find out more about The Outer View at alanswan.com. <laughs>